Welcome to Using Our Library Voices, a podcast that represents yet another way that Harris County Public Library provides information and resources to enrich lives and strengthen communities through innovative programs and services, both within and beyond our walls. My name is Ellen Kalusia, and I am the Young Adult Librarian from the Northwest Branch Library. In this episode, our librarians honor Women's History Month. We're highlighting women who've made change across history, from the ancient world to the modern and in their own communities. With social media putting industries in public life, topics like Gamergate and diversity in gaming have made their way into mainstream conversation. Our librarians discuss the impact of women in gaming and examine representation in the industry. My name is Nicole from Octavia Fields Library. And I'm Elizabeth from Tomball Community Library. For this segment in our Women's History Month episode, we're going to be talking about some more recent history, women in video games, and specifically Gamergate. It might seem strange that a library podcast is talking about this issue, but even aside from the fact that I'm a woman who's played video games my entire life. And I am as well. There are a lot of reasons why libraries should be concerned about this. The first is that many of our customers are gamers. The Entertainment Software Association reports that there were 214.4 million gamers in the United States in 2020, and that number is only going to go up. Part of our job as libraries is to prepare the communities we serve to navigate the complex media ecosystem that we're all a part of. While we loan out books, movies, and music, video games are another art form that impacts our communities and one that many libraries actively engage with. That's right. Uh, And gaming programs are consistently popular pretty much across every branch of HCPL. And this goes beyond programs and materials. When our customers use our computers or Wi-Fi, they're often playing video games. So in the way that we're mindful about the cultural and social ramifications of the books, movies, and music we acquire, we also need to be aware of the world that games are being made in, because that's the world that our customers are living in. Like you said, we're all about helping our customers as they approach the world and providing whatever knowledge or services that we can. So let's jump into it. Who plays video games, Elizabeth? So when you think of your average gamer, you're probably thinking of a teenage boy But the demographics are much more diverse than that. Every year, the Entertainment Software Association puts out a report of video game player demographics. And for 2020, they found that the average age of a gamer is actually between 35 and 44. Wow. So not at all like what we think of when we have the the image of a gamer in our head, right? Yeah, really not even close. Um, And what's more surprising (laughs) than the ages is that 41% of the gamers surveyed identified as women, which means that in 2020, there were 87.9 million women who played video games just in the United States. Wow. So how did women get started in the game industry? I mean, like, I'm assuming that all women just became aware of video games in like a huge discovery. Like we just discovered it in like 2010, right? (laughs) Like there were no women in video games before 2010 or something like that. Yeah. um, Not quite. Uh, (laughs) Women have been involved in gaming, both in the industry and as consumers for pretty much as long as video games have existed. 
So Atari, the first major company producing home video game consoles, had a female developer on their team pretty much from the get-go. Her name was Carol Shaw. And the game studio Sierra, which is now owned by Activision, which is a huge company, was founded by a woman named Roberta Williams in 1979. And that's really just kind of from the top-level development angle. Women have also held prominent roles in PR, marketing, and design from the inception of the video games industry. So that kind of tracks with what we know about the, the computer and technology industry in general is the first programmers were actually women. They first started out and then it kind of became more of a male field. So is that kind of what's happening in gaming? Yeah, so programming and coding initially was seen as kind of women's work because it was thought to be tedious and detail-oriented. But as the industry began to grow and as computers and other electronics became more common, it began to be seen as more of kind of a manly, masculine field. Um, And that was also true with video games when the industry was beginning to grow in the 1970s. But interestingly, the video games themselves were considered to be gender neutral. So when video games were first gaining popularity as arcade machines, they sought to fill the same niche in the market as like pinball machines, which were popular in bars where young professionals would drink after work. Um, You can still find a lot of bars that have pinball machines. Um, (laughs) And games were seen as more of like a novelty And this was further reinforced by the kind of abstract, non-representational design styles that were necessitated by the low graphical quality of early video games. So think like Pong. Oh, yeah. Just the the two lines. Yeah, two lines and a dot. Yeah, it's kind of hard to fit gender roles into something like Pong. Um, But early video game advertisements also kind of reinforced this really utopian vision that we have for early electronics like video games. And the ads often featured women and girls uh, showing that at least initially video games were thought to be something that anyone could enjoy. And this would really change in the 1980s. So since video games were a novelty, the video game market became oversaturated with cheap, poorly made games, eventually leading to a nearly complete market crash in 1983. Yeah, I know a little bit about like video game trivia is uh, E.T. the video game came out in 1982 and it was a game so notoriously bad that Atari basically gave up on selling it and dumped thousands of cartridges into a landfill and then covered it with concrete because they were afraid that kids would go digging through the <laughs> landfill. But it, it wasn't the only terrible game on the market at that time, but it, it and the other massive flops nearly killed the video game industry entirely, right? Yeah, so it basically destroyed the arcade market, and this was right when consoles were beginning to get more popular, and it almost destroyed those as well. But the market was actually saved by a really common household name in gaming, which is Nintendo. Oh, Um, yeah. (laughs) Uh, I think most of us would be, even if we don't play video games. We know them as the masterminds behind franchises like Super Mario or Pokemon, a lot of the biggest names in video gaming today still. And they salvaged the market in kind of a couple interesting ways. So the first was to implement rigid quality control standards. 
so that if you bought a Nintendo game as a consumer, you could assume that it was good. It's kind of hard to imagine that that was not a standard because now we go through like beta testing in the industry, mm-hmm. right? So it's kind of yeah. hard to imagine that <laughs> they wouldn't do it uh, before then. Yeah, so if you look at some of these older Nintendo games, they would actually have a Nintendo seal on the box um, to show that it had gone through the Nintendo quality control testing. And that was really big at the time because most (laughs) video games were made to you're playing a video game, not you're playing a a well-made piece of of gaming entertainment. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, so that was really big. But the second thing that they did that we're still kind of feeling the ramifications of today was they shifted how video games were marketed. So rather than trying to sell video games to everyone as early developers were, they conducted market research and found that boys under 18 were the largest demographic playing video games at the time. And then after learning this, they marketed to young boys exclusively, ushering in decades of video games being seen as something that were only made for boys. Marketing materials shifted to only feature male players, and games were almost exclusively made with male protagonists and an implicit male perspective. Okay, so what you're telling me is that Mario is responsible for video game sexism. (laughs) Uh, You said it, not me. Um, But you are on to something. So the boys who grew up playing these male-focused games in the 1980s loved them. And they didn't want to quit playing video games once they aged out of Nintendo's initial under-18 demographic. So in the 1990s, more video games started to be made with an adult audience in mind, but still only a male one. And this would largely continue to be the case for the next 20 years. Female protagonists in video games were rare because many companies felt that male gamers wouldn't play games starring women. Female protagonists that did exist, like Lara Croft from the Tomb Raider games, for instance, were heavily sexualized, even with the relatively limited graphics that we had at the time. (laughs) And female side characters often existed as MacGuffins, plot devices, or set dressing. Yeah, no, I remember early Lara Croft and her her triangle body. Um, (laughs) Very sharp quarters. There was also, like, Samus. That was a huge, not to spoil, like, a 30 some odd 40 year old (laughs) video game but like the end of metroid you find out that samus is a girl she takes off her armor and then you can see her in like this 8-bit bikini yeah yeah and like many female gamers i love samus i still love samus but she didn't exactly solve sexism (laughs) but you know just because nintendo and other game companies had shifted to marketing exclusively to boys and men The demographic of women and girls who had always been playing games never disappeared. That's just the resilience of women. We're always showing up even where people don't want us. Um, (laughs) Instead, they were, they were, we were left to play games that either were not made for us in mind or to play games that were made using patronizing stereotypical ideas of the kinds of things that girls and women are interested in, like cooking, child rearing, and fashion. I'm thinking Cooking Mama. Cooking I'm Mama thinking. is great, but also cooking Mama like. Cooking <laughs> is great. It is. I love Cooking Mama. Um, Barbie mm-hmm. games were like the only ones that I could find that had like a girl protagonist in it. And then uh, yeah. the Nancy Drew point and click adventure games too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can even see this kind of dripping into these really established properties like Super Mario. 
there was a game for the Nintendo DS. I think it's called Super Princess Peach, where you play <laughs> as Princess Peach. But the main mechanic of the game is that um, you use Peach's overwhelming emotions to control <laughs> how you move through the game. So if you're sad, you cry, and that can add water. If you're angry, you can, like, shoot fire. It's, it's not exactly a, a big win for complex gender representation. You're right. That's a really obvious, like, stereotype that women have, like, really uncontrollable emotions, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can see that in that game, but just the the kinds of games, if you walked into like a GameStop or like a Walmart video game section in the 90s or early 2000s, you would see like one shelf of pink boxes and the, the kinds of things that companies were making with girls and women in mind were really narrow in their scope. Um, and because of this, when we grew up and we came into this this space that was not made with us in mind, women decided that the best way to make the market more inclusive to women was to make games themselves with a female audience in mind. And as you might expect, showing up to an industry that had been both explicitly and implicitly designed for men and striving to make space for women didn't exactly go over quietly. So this is kind of the lead up to Gamergate, which is probably, I would say, the most significant event in video game culture since Nintendo in the 1983 video game crash and things like that. Yeah, so a lot of things led to creating a time where Gamergate could happen and it could dominate the cultural conversation, both for gamers and non-gamers alike. But the basic timeline of it began in 2013 An independent female video game developer named Zoe Quinn released a non-traditional game called Depression Quest that received a fair bit of positive attention from the gaming media. In response to this praise, her ex-partner alleged with no evidence that she had essentially bought this media attention by seducing men in the gaming industry. Um, That's Which is like, such a like a stock trope criticism of successful women in any industry or field no matter what level uh Mm -hmm. my friend just got promoted to being a general manager at a fast food chain and had to deal with people saying that she slept with her supervisor to get that job like Mm -hmm. it's so it's so common like it's so pervasive in our culture yeah and really nothing is safe from this so (laughs) gaming might be its own beast in a lot of ways but it's still an industry that exists within our broader sexist culture. So basically, this huge incident incited massive debates on the internet about women's place in gaming as developers, consumers, and figures in the games themselves. This culminated in death threats and harassment against Quinn, as well as other women in gaming, the media, and the gaming community at large. And I'm talking such huge harassment People sold their homes and moved because they were worried about someone breaking into their home. It was it was really, really bad. And basically, after decades of being told that games existed for men and men alone, many were not happy to be told that women played games, wanted to be part of the gaming industry, and wanted to see themselves in the games that they played. So this all took place in... 2014, which was like seven years ago. And I remember being on the internet during this time and uh, 
it wasn't fun. Um, uh, but you know what? The good news is the game industry and gamers all sat down and we had a big discussion about misogyny in the industry and the community and held the people who'd sent all those death threats and harassment accountable. And now everything's fixed, right? <laughs> Remember that part where that oh, happened? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I wish you were right. Um, <laughs> but essentially, Gamergate was never resolved. And it's pretty much not over, <laughs> even though it was what feels like a million years ago now. These arguments are still happening all the time in gaming spaces, both online and in the real world. But crucially, Gamergate took these silent assumptions that were being made about what video games were and who they were for and brought them into the broader cultural conversation. So only about 23% of game developers identified as women as of a 2017 survey by the International Gaming Developer Association. And as with basically every other industry, female developers are consistently paid less than their male counterparts. But advances are being made and have been made consistently since Gamergate first started. Nonprofit groups like Women in Games provide female gaming professionals with mentorship, support, and networking. All female esports teams like CLG Red and C9 White allow women's space to participate in the historically hostile professional gaming community. And all of this trickles down into better, more well-rounded representation of women in video games. For example, The Last of Us 2, which was one of the biggest games to come out last year, featured two female protagonists as well as a female antagonist who all had complex characterization and rich narratives to work with. So Super Princess Peach, this is not. We have, we have come <laughs> a long way. And things are improving, genuinely, but there is still definitely work to be done. Absolutely. And I think it's important to have these conversations constantly, but especially during Women's History Month, because we tend to look at quote unquote history as being like ancient history, you know, like way back in the day, like Cleopatra and, you know, women, not even this is an ancient history, but like women getting white women getting the right to vote in 1920. Mm -hmm. So all of this happened in 2014 and is still like you said, continuing to happen and none of it got resolved. We still see this like chronic harassment, this really like honestly nauseating harassment of women in gaming all the time. Like one of the major examples I can think of is Gagory, the professional esports player. She played, uh, she got picked up by the Shanghai Dragons to play in the Overwatch League. And she was just everybody, nobody liked that. She just like got <laughs> signed and everybody's like, a girl? No. Like, so Can't nobody liked done. that. Yeah, no, it's, and this was all in the past two years. And it's it's important to not think of like history so much as like ancient history or like decades past, but approach our current environment and how it folds into our history, right? Yeah, definitely. History is always happening. And there's still a lot of work to be done to make gaming an equitable space for all gamers. We were talking about women, but there are also strides that need to be made for people of color, for people in the LGBTQ community to make gaming an equitable space. Um, but the fact that we're having this conversation here today, the fact that people are listening to it thank is, you so a, <laughs> yes, thank you so much for listening. All of this is, a, these are really good signs. And I, for one, can't wait to see what the future holds for women and for everyone really in gaming. Powerful women have always existed throughout history. In this clip from our upcoming spinoff, 
our gabbing librarians are back to discuss their favorite female historical figures. Why do these three particular women appeal to us? What do you think? Well, the obvious, I feel, is always that they made history. You know, we're still we're still talking about them now, long after, you know, their stories have been told. And just us being librarians, you know, it's, it's all about keeping and recording our own chapters. And for all of their influence, they've, you know, had that, that their names live on in our lives just from the actions that they took, you know. Darcy was saying uh, she's got a, a a daughter with a middle name that shares this influential lady in her life, and you know, we we know more about them, and we we build on we stand on their shoulders to reach higher heights, you know. It's it's strange. I have in my office, um, I call it my strong women power corner, and it has people like Wonder Woman and the people you'd you know, Princess Leia, but it also has like. The women who worked in NASA from the Legos kits. And it's like, now I have to go find Shirley Chisholm to go yeah. put in my woman corner. There you go, yeah. <laughs> I'm on the hunt now. <laughs> <laughs> Ever being the book writer, I have a I have a composition book here of uh, like all of the women that I, you know, enjoy following the their life stories mm-hmm. of, you know, like Bessie Coleman decided to, you know, take a motorcycle across the United States and that's amazing and you know Mae Jemsen was the first black woman in space and it's like you know all of these women were just they didn't say oh well you know what I think I'm gonna make history today they just did these things and it's it's amazing how they those stories still reverberate with you now. Mae Jemsen's in my in my uh woman corner. <laughs> hey all right I love this. Be sure to keep an ear out for more Gabbing with Librarians coming soon to a podcast platform near you. Our librarians interview Raquel Ortiz, author of Sophie's Magic Musical Mural, who has produced a puppet show to showcase her bilingual adventure. She speaks on sharing Puerto Rican culture through art and music. I am Sunita Shaver, and I am one of the children's librarians at the Barbara Bush Branch Library of the Harris County Public Libraries, and I am here with Dr. Raquel Ortiz. Go ahead and tell us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Hi, Sabina. Thank you for inviting me. I am an anthropologist, a songwriter, an educator, and above all, a storyteller. How did you discover your path to storytelling? So I come from a family of storytellers, and I think the top ones would be my grandmother, my godmother, and my father. So I've been listening to really well-told stories my whole life. I personally started, I was drawing, I was painting, and sewing, and I was doing journaling. And then I started to write essays for my degrees when I was in college. So I was doing a lot of research that I would then weave into these beautiful essays, or I thought they were beautiful, <laughs> that were my academic work when I was doing the undergrad and the master's. And then when I was working on my dissertation for my PhD, I was studying public mural. And I had this ritual that in the mornings I would write, and I would sit myself down and I would 
hours? Right, two hours. I'm, wow, two so hours. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Every day, two hours. It was a dissertation. Come on. <laughs> None of this was easy or simple. No, no. This is a woman's month, right? <laughs> no, okay. Writing the dissertation on the kitchen table after I cleared it off from breakfast and washed the dishes. That was the, wow. the context. So I was writing and I was lucky I was at the part where I was analyzing these murals, weaving the history and all the information I had and tying it to these beautiful pieces of artwork. So I would make myself write, but they got to this point where I would just start imagining things. So I looked at this beautiful mural I was studying. I was like, what if someone went into it? And then once she was in there, what if she was running around the island of Puerto Rico? And we had lived in Puerto Rico. There's this horrible traffic situation there. And she's young, you know, a little kid. So she, went, she couldn't drive. <laughs> so what if she had wings? <laughs> you know, and what if we had her lying all over the place? So the best success story of my dissertation is I finished it and it actually was it is published as a book. Wow. But also, it yes, it gave birth to Sophie the Magic Musical Mural. <laughs> so that's, that's my interesting twist. This is crazy. And I know I, the call I was just on was with the artist and at El Museo de Barrio because we met in New York City and I worked in the education department with her. So I had met the artist and I got to know her. I asked her if I could study her work to do this dissertation and she was great with that. And, you know, when you're working with people, I think you feel responsibility to share their work because mm. they're so generous with their time. And then luckily, you know, that turned into the story. And when I sold the manuscript, I asked if the artist could illustrate the book and they said yes. So when you go to the back, it tells you the information about the mural. And this mural was a community mural. So it was this mural that was made with all of these different hands. Mm. And at the very end of the Sophie story, she looks back and she looks at her sister's name because with community murals, it's really important to list all the people that participate. So so on you know, a number of levels, it's just a, it's a very, very special story to me. Yeah. And, and you know, that's the beginning, <laughs> the beginning of the, <laughs> the story of writing children's books. I love that though. I love that it came from a time that for a lot of people is very stressful and you found not only your future, but a lot of beauty in it that you were able to make another path from. Right. No. And I remember when I defended, the big critique was it wasn't long. I was like 400 pages, but it's University of Salamanca. So the dissertations go longer. Mm. And I was thinking, dude, how many pages do you want? <laughs> um, but they love the part with the murals because then you took all this uh, abstract information and ideas and you made it some concrete and they love that part of the dissertation and I love that part too but you know I also understood that finishing <laughs> was lovely also <laughs> well then that's a great way to talk about the characters you've developed are Sophie Julia and now Vicky extensions of yourself or a summation of expressing girlhood well I think that to an extent they are but when I talk about my stories you see what I say is that they're love letters to the people and to places or special mm. events that have happened to me. And then I also, when I think about it, what usually happens is, you know, you have to make this commitment to writing this manuscript. And people think, oh, it's short and it's easy. It's short and it's hard. <laughs> what it is. And it, I think sometimes it's very hard to carve down and be so concise mm. and then hopefully to be somewhat lyrical when you're telling these stories. Usually there's this little bugging inside of you and it gets to the point sometimes at the beginning of the career, I think you try to say no to it because you're like, no, <laughs> go away, go away. But I have this want to explore something and it'll be something that I'm struggling with or want to figure out. Specifically in the story of Sophie, it's a little girl that's afraid of something that she 
doesn't understand. So there's this Gigante, which is a character from Carnival, on a big mural outside in her neighborhood. And she doesn't know what it is. And I was playing with the idea of how we address the unknown, how we reject or are scared of the unknown, just because it's unknown. So what do we do? How do we deal with that? Mm. And then with the newest book, with the Vicky character, she wants to be a part of making change happen. But she doesn't exactly know how, and she's not really being invited. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when you're on the outside looking in and you want to get in, how does that feel? Yeah. And then when you do become a part of that, and you do get to become a part of the solution to a problem, in this case, a problem, how does that feel? The book came out really quickly. So that, we started working on it about a year and a half ago. So it was already when I was seeing a lot of things that were making me feel very uncomfortable mm. and making me very nostalgic for change and for community. I love that it's coming from a place of she's not being invited into those spaces, but she still really wants to do something and make a change. And I'm super mm-hmm. bummed we didn't have it at my branch because <laughs> I think it's going to be my favorite. Yeah, no, I think that one and then the other one that I don't know how much I can weave into this interview, but with the Julia book, that's the one that came out as a junior national right. library guild. Right. I and saw that award. That, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that one's fun. So you might really like that one as well. And one of the reasons I think it was real successful with that story is by that time I had the first Sophie, you know, your first book is kind of like, oof, it's like your first child mm. or first degree or whatever. You're just trying to figure out how all this works. I, I was lucky and I, I got to do a lot of school reading so I got to learn what works with the children oh. and music and rhythm and participation super works with at least New York City kids well with all kids because I've been out to many different places now so I weave throughout the book the beat the yuba beat of bomba mm-hmm. and then we sing there's a singing part and nothing I think is very fun because of that so it's another you know it's, it's a fun story kind of like figuring yourself out and, and pulling yourself together I like that you made it performative too because you're right kids love a performance. Right. And that, I guess, is sort of going to answer my next question, why you chose puppets as a secondary medium for sharing Mm -hmm. Sophie, how that differs from the publishing process. The performative aspect is very, very cool because, yeah, kids eat it up. Right. Well, what happened was, well, the super long story is we went to an event at BAM, my son and I, and they gave him a panza, a paperback puppet. So I stood there and he cut it out and taped it. And it was this treasure. <laughs> so like, okay. And, I, you know, at the time I was like, this is the greatest thing in the world. You know, the face, the body, and then you open the little mouth, mm-hmm. you know, the paper fold. <laughs> it was a mouth of beef. Brilliant. <laughs> so then my book comes out and it's this Bejigante character that no one knows what the Bejigante is. We're already second and third generation Puerto Rican kids with limits Puerto Rican kids. So I made, I used the same format, but I did it with the Bejigante. It's not expensive because, of course, you and I both know that a lot of our systems don't have a lot of different materials. Mm. So when I could email them the template, and I would come in and with some schools, I would, would stay a bit longer. So we would make them together. Mm. And yeah, yeah. So the great thing with the Bejigante is that the Bejigante has wings. So besides teaching up for the gigante, I was also talking to them and saying, listen, you all have wings. Where are you going to fly next? Because mm-hmm. the point of the story isn't that Sophia becomes a gigante. The point is that she has wings and she yeah. goes somewhere. So then the kids, they would tell me things like Connecticut or Staten <laughs> Island. I'm like, no. <laughs> you don't need wings for that. <laughs> you know? So then I started running around with a world map. <laughs> saying, like, 
how about China? How about because that's the problem, and that's why we need you and I. If we don't show them, there's more than just oh the two train to the Bronx.、Mm. That's all they're gonna know. Yeah. So there I was lying around Brooklyn, like turning all the kids into making up, <laughs> <laughs> and that was cool. And then I was lucky that I made contact with someone at Cleveland Public Libraries, Melanie Guzman McCarter. So Melanie, she invited me to do some readings in Cleveland, and she saw how I was with the kids and how I would have them showing instruments and how they would sing with me and we would sing together before I did the reading and then during the reading how we would together have this reading. And she loved it. And then she came to me and talked, started talking to me about a puppet production. And she luckily has an undergrad in theater and she she did graduate studies in costume design. So this is her happy space,、nice. which was good because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. <laughs> So, so we co-wrote the script, and she was great because the blocking and lighting, and you know, there were so many little pieces to it that I didn't know, and I of course wouldn't have added because I just didn't know that. And then she and I both so so she actually did with this newest production, she created the puppets. But I do have you know, a background in, in sewing, so I understood you know three-dimensional designs and sewing and stuff like that. I think it's important. It's different in that it's much more dynamic. Mm, I mean,、yes. my readings are dynamic, but you know, with figures and stuff, it's, it's much. <laughs> Dynamic, and then also a production has to run about twenty five thirty minutes, or no one wants you. <laughs> so, versus, no, you know, real like you're a librarian. If I told you I had a seven minute play, you <laughs> hang up on me. So we're like, okay, so this story, and we know they like the story because it's based on a book, and we know our audience are the library. So like, these are our friends. So how do we do this? So we already had the music. So then I decided to create a couple more songs. And the great thing with that is back to the original. The story is 850 words. So, who do you really get to know, and how do you get to know them with you know such a small amount of words?、Mm. So then I was able to go into Sophie and Mami and the Blenero and kind of you know expand a little bit who they were and why they were the way they were. And then with the Bejigante in the book and in the the musical, the Bejigante never has a speaking line, but we sing about this Bejigante and we celebrate the Bejigante. So it was really fun to be able to unpack a little bit this whole idea of trickster, which I'm sure you know、oh. is in all culture. All cultures, all、I、over the world, and it's such an important. Yes, exactly. And then you know, there's times when you you have to be careful what you say, where you say. But I will always talk about why the trickster is so important to question things, to make us look at ourselves and laugh at ourselves, and to sometimes lighten things. But also to question things. When we have a mask and you know our identity is hidden or protected, what can I do? What would I say? So that liberty. And we just finished. You know, we had Fat Tuesday. Everyone's finished Carnival.、Mm -hmm. And why? You know, what purpose does that serve? In Brooklyn, where I was living, there's a huge Caribbean community, and we have the big parade. So they might not know Bejigante, but they sure do know Carnival. Yeah. So then it was nice because it was this very universal, unifying thing. And that's the other thing that you know. I've been talking to with people that I work with is that how do we do something that we can replicate and that we can share? Because once again, my community don't have a lot of resources and don't have a lot of spaces. So how do we figure out how to make this joyful and beautiful and fun and dynamic and easily shareable? And this is what we're doing now. I love that puppets. Your story about your son and the puppet and it just being this treasure. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the way though? When you were that young and that first paper bag puppet, I remember my first、right. paper bag puppet. <laughs> 
Yeah, I know, and on my wall, I have one that, at the school, they did one where they just drew the figure, and then they put a stick, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> forget the paperback, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you think, okay, okay, and I think that the thing is that, you know, it's so beautiful that that's an age where they can see and they can imagine. It's so important to make them feel included. Yeah. It's so important. When it's me watching you, there's this divide, and I understand it, but I think it's hard when you're six mm. or seven or eight. You want to be there, and you might not be on stage, but if you could at least sing and stomp and clap, you're with me. That's what this production has allowed me to do a lot more than even the storytelling has allowed me to do. I'm really grateful. But that's definitely the most fulfilling part of being a storyteller and being able to share those experiences with kids because they want to engage, they want to interact, that you will want to engage them and that you appreciate right. their attention. And it's nice to be able to share that with them. Uh, yeah, and I think that's one of the keys is that if we don't share our stories, which I can't ask you to start sharing stories when you're like a junior in college. I mean, I can, but <laughs> I have to wait. <laughs> it would have made sense for us to do this all along and yeah. to honor that and then to understand that there's so many cultures that really do honor that because it is a way of learning and that this oral tradition with the Dejigante and the Plena Music for the first book and with the Julia book with the Bomba, this is part of our oral tradition mm. and it's important to honor and to celebrate that. And there were reasons why it was important and it is important to honor and celebrate that so I think if we don't cultivate that at a, a very young age it does a disservice in your documentary memories on the wall we see public art and the symbols used to convey identity have you had a chance to look at the mini mural project that was started here in Houston yeah so I did look at some of the images and I think they're really beautiful how do you feel these community markers will hold up as public art and expressions of identity well like I shared with you I studied murals for my dissertation, specifically community murals. And for my selfie book, it's inspired by the community mural at Pueblo Cantor, so The Community Sings by Maria Dominguez. And what I learned when I was studying community murals is that the longevity and the love that's tied to community murals is it comes from them being made with the community mm. and by the community. And then another piece of this is that since it, from inception, the planning and the design is a conversation with community members that this design incorporates images that the community wants or likes or thinks is important. Sometimes community members get to paint them as well. Mm -hmm. And then there's usually some symbols that connect in some way, shape, or form. So I think that as long as these mini murals have that and incorporate some of that, so if they are somehow connecting to their space, either with the people or somehow connecting to the space itself, the physicality of that space, or some kind of aesthetic that will connect with people, then I think they'll be successful. And I was also kind of playing in my head with the idea of I was living in Chicago when they were doing that cow project. I don't know if you know oh, about it or heard about it. The art cow. I did that in um, middle <laughs> yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, Cool. Exactly. So, and the whole thing, because, you know, the mini murals, when I looked at them, I saw a name underneath. It felt like it was an artist making this. And I don't know, you know, who yeah. the artists were or any of that backstory. I am more familiar with murals in Philadelphia and some murals in Chicago. And my disclaimer is that I, I know I study community murals. So that's my focus and that's what I can speak about. But I would say aesthetically things can be beautiful, but they can be very cold or not well received if there's no connection to it. Mm. So with the cows, it was this generic cow, but since the whole city understood the story of the cow, it was already very welcome. And then they did have single artists designing usually the designs of the cow. And the artist was allowed to pick whatever design he or she wanted. And it was it was great. You know, you would see all these different designs and all these different takes. And I know people were running around the city trying to see as many cows as they could. <laughs> 
you know, I, you know, I've seen some of the mini murals. I don't know how they roll it out or how they, they present it, but I think it depends on how it's being done. And that's going to let you know if this is going to, you know, stick or not be held dear or not by the people in the community where the art lives. What would you like to say to young girls hoping to find a life in art? And what do they need for that drive in themselves? What obstacles did you face and what emerging obstacles that you've seen would you advise them to look out for? I would tell young girls that we all have stories that need to be told and that need to be heard. And these stories need to be told in tons of different ways. Through song, through painting, through sculptures, theater, movies, books, and a hundred billion other ways that Mm. you can imagine telling stories. And making up new ways to tell stories, really. (laughs) And then with that, with the drive to understand or to embrace that, it's you finding that joy in your work and also being brave to speak the truth and to be real and vulnerable. And I think sometimes it's really hard and sometimes it's really scary Mm. to be vulnerable and to be truthful. But I think that's what people need. I think that's what people want. And I think that that is back to other things we spoke about, things that people connect to. If you're not giving a piece of yourself, I don't know if people are going to to want it. It's just going to fall a little bit flat. With obstacles, with publishing, I've come to understand that publishing is an industry and (laughs) publishing is based on sales. So, you know, it it can be real tiresome and really uh, exhausting to promote books. But I've been able to flip the narrative for myself and to understand that I'm sharing my work and I'm celebrating my culture. I do a lot of work around bilingual, bicultural literacy and with family literacy programs. So I connect to this type of work and I feel good doing it. And I know that we need to promote ourselves and to share and promote our art but I'm also trying to be very articulate about saying that we have to feel good about mm-hmm. doing that. We have to be comfortable with it and we have to make it our own. You know, I don't want to be, you know, twittering and pin trusting and <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do TikTok. I'm not doing a TikTok. <laughs> so, it's just it's not me. <laughs> and then like for the last piece with emerging obstacles, I think that we need to push back on being told what we can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. And that when opportunities come, we have to say yes like capital Y-E-S with an explanation mark and then to figure out how to do it or get people to help us and if we get people to help us it's a collab and that's beautiful also yeah. I never made a documentary until I made a documentary <laughs> I never wrote a script until I wrote a script <laughs> I don't have a master's degree in creative writing I don't have any film school underneath my belt I have other degrees. My anthropology background teaches me to celebrate and share cultures of this factor and share stories. But I read and I studied and I went to the library and I reached out to friends and more friends and people, even people that weren't friends. (laughs) (laughs) And I asked for help and I asked for feedback. But the most important thing is I made the decision to believe myself and believe in myself that I could do it. And I dare to say that, yes. So I would ask every young girl and every not so young girl to think about that, yes. And if they don't feel like saying yes to question why we don't feel like we can say yes mm, you know yeah. we should have always been taught we should say yes and we can say yes the end <laughs> <laughs> I think that was very well put because you're right it can be scary and it can be uh, not what you set out originally to do you know that oh, yeah. you don't oh, yeah. have the, the background in it but you've done it and it's quite beautiful and you not only did it but you found other ways to perform it which is very right, commendable right. let's go ahead and plug the puppet show so it's Sophie's Magic Adventure and us I'm in Buddhist as Sophie it's a 
25-minute bilingual musical puppet performance, and it's based on my bilingual children's picture book, Sophie and the Magic Musical Mural, Sophie y el Magico Mural Musical. So you all will be joining Sophie, exploring public art, imagination, and the Puerto Rican tradition of Carnaval, as Sophie visits places all over the island of Puerto Rico and gets to know the character of the Gigante, and we'll sing songs in English and Spanish, and bounce around to plena music created by four-time Grammy-nominated composer William Zabetta. I've been lucky. The libraries have been wonderful to me, and I always try to be wonderful back. So. Well, you're an absolute big- treat, so thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, and if Marina asks, don't tell her I was so chatty. <laughs> <laughs> I, she'll never know. Crafts have always been important aspects of culture, and their works created primarily by women. Our HCPL makers discuss the reclamation of domestic arts through craft and do-it-yourself ideas. Hi, my name is Lauren Peters, and I am a Maker Outreach Specialist at HCPL. I'm super excited to be here today and talk about some great maker and DIY books that tie into the theme of feminism. For some context, I think especially in the maker movement, which is the rise of small maker spaces and public creative workshops, we've seen a boom in the introduction of women and girls to a variety of historically male-dominated fields like STEM, woodworking, welding, and manufacturing. Women are leading the charge in innovating on traditional crafts and technology. Today at HCPO, we have free public makerspaces at multiple library branches, and we get patrons of every age and gender in to learn about 3D printing, coding, sewing, laser cutting, and so much more. It's really amazing to see people come in and use our equipment in new and experimental ways at a scale that was never possible before. It's also interesting because if we think back in the early 20th century, there were already social structures that existed which were really similar to the current maker community, but made up of almost entirely women. These would be things like local knitting circles, crafting clubs, even home ec classes centered around cooking and sewing. Women have always ruled the craft scene, but rarely have they been recognized for their excellence in these undervalued skills. In the present day, this has been challenged by women around the world who call for the recognition of women in creative fields and who use their skills to advocate for feminist issues, which even created the term craftivism. Craftivism is a combination of crafts and activism. It spans pretty much every artistic medium and is any way you use your creative talents to advocate for change. If you'd like to start your own craftivist project, HCBL has some books for you. The first of which is Be the Change, The Future is in Your Hands by Eunice and Sabrina Moyle. Not only does this book have over 16 creative step-by-step projects in it, it's also packed with information and advice on how you can take action in your community. You'll find tips on how to handle conflict, navigate social media, organize civic action, and so much more. I especially love how this book inspires its readers, especially girls, to look at how they can make a change in the culture, in the economy, and in government. You'll learn how to create posters, public service announcements, DIY t-shirts, and more to turn your creative pursuits into political power. Next, we also have Feisty Felties, Rebel Crafts for Budding Feminists by Missy Covington. This book jumps right into the art of felt crafts and sewing with a variety of fun projects and detailed instructions. Not only does it come with templates for recreating some of the most iconic women in history in felt form, it also has things like allyship bracelets, gold trees, goddess crowns, and other empowering crafts for young girls. If you've ever wanted a simple introduction into embroidery or fabric arts, this book covers essential basics while also having an inspiring feminist twist. 
Finally, you'll want to check out Crafting the Resistance by Laura Neal and Heather Murano. This book is packed with 35 projects centered around the principles of craftivism and full of tongue-in-cheek humor as well. I definitely recommend this book to women and allies who want to make a bold statement and turn the domestic art of knitting and sewing into an act of defiance. For example, it includes the don't be ladylike cowl, a security waist belt, resistance ornaments, and more. If you're looking for knitting projects that pack a punch, this book is sure to deliver. There's many more where that came from, so be sure to explore our HCPL catalog online for even more books on craftivism, women's history, and feminism. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Nancy Hugh and John Harbo, edited by Nicole Heineman and Beth Cripple, hosted by Ellen Kalusia. Featured presenters were Jennifer Finch, Rebecca Trent, Darcy Casavant, Elizabeth Burton, Nicole Heineman, Sadina Shaver, and Raquel Ortiz.